Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Okay, we're back in the Malibu studios. Thank you, Mark Sisson, for joining us. And our regular listeners will realize that it's been quite a while since we've had a Q&A podcast from our listeners. Looking forward to it. Let's get started. Okay, let's get into some of these interesting questions. One of them is from Walter, a 92-year-old from Woodland Hills, California, and he writes in to talk about how his oncologist is uh, treating him for prostate cancer for many years and also wants his blood lipids in the ideal range. Um, he was placed on small doses of a statin drug, Zocor, and several months ago, he stopped Zocor to see if he really needed it, and to his surprise, LDL went up to 145 from uh, the 60 to 90 area. Due to expense factors in the lab, my individual components, the small dense particles, were not identified. It has me wondering if I should alter my paleo-style diet and be more careful of the eggs, butter, and fatty meats that I eat. Along the same lines, I noticed the American Cancer Society and some other medical sources have warned against eating too much red meat, especially regarding colorectal cancer. Again, saturated fat is regarded as the culprit, and we're warned that high saturated fat diets lead to increases in LDL and, of course, increases in heart disease risk, according to the conventional wisdom story. I'm told by my doctor to go back on statin drugs as a logical answer to lower my LDL. Do I really have to go back on statin drugs? Mm. Well, you know, this is uh, the, the classic battle between the paleo world and the, and the uh, traditional medical world, which um, tends to still view fats and cholesterol as approximate cause of heart disease. And uh, more and more ev- evidence is showing that heart disease is not that uh, related to cholesterol and fat and much more related to oxidation and uh, inflammation. So in the case of Walter, um, I, I note that um, some of the numbers are great. The triglycerides at 42 was awesome. I mean, that's a great number. Uh, HDL at 52 probably could be a little higher. Um, what we notice that people go on to a, a paleo diet, the LDL does tend to increase in just about everybody that gets on a, on a uh, paleo or primal blueprint uh, diet. Uh, that's a natural fact from eating more saturated fat, but also... HDL, the so-called good cholesterol, tends to increase. So there are a lot of different variables that we have to look at here. And, you know, somebody who is uh, 92 years old and is dealing with uh, chemo and whatever uh, therapeutic effects of uh, whatever they're taking for a longstanding prostate cancer issue, you know, this whole blood lipid thing is just one small part of that. So the question ends with, does everybody have to go on statin drugs? And the answer is unequivocally no. Everybody does not have to go on statin drugs, and I think most people don't have to go on statin drugs. And we could probably do a whole new show on, uh, on just the latest information on, say, uh, calcium scores. And when you take a look at the 
uh, coronary arteries and, and the amount of calcium that's deposited around those. And that's really indicative of something going on biochemically that, that is an effect of oxidation and inflammation. So in this case, you know, this, I'm not going to, I don't give medical advice, but um, I, I would not be worried about a, uh, a raise in LDL cholesterol if triglycerides are fine, if HDL is fine, if all other indicators are, are, are great. All we're talking about is a, uh, a perceived increase in risk from one small part of the medical community that is always kind of attached uh, risk to cholesterol and, uh, and saturated fat, and we're starting to see that that's no longer the case. Uh, well, in Dr. Ron Sinha's book, The South Asian Health Solution, and also in The Primal Blueprint, you talk about the difference between small, dense LDL, which are potentially dangerous because they can lodge in the walls of the arteries and become oxidized, and then large, fluffy LDL, which roam around in the bloodstream, and they're generally harmless, generally. Uh, so if someone was, if you were going to tell someone not to worry about their LDL because their triglycerides are low? Yeah, I mean, you, you could start with low triglyceride uh, as being a, a primary uh, indicator that everything is fine. But um, secondarily, if you, if you look at the particle size and, um, and particle number, which is another test that you can get done, uh, a specific blood test, I mean, that's sort of the next level of blood testing you could do. And if you have um, small, dense particles, um, you know, what they call pattern B, which are, which are a higher risk, put you in a higher risk category. That's one other added level of testing that can be done. Um, also, uh, Peter Atia has done a lot of work looking at particle number, just total number of particles. And there's some, there seems to be some uh, correlation, at least, with uh, a high particle number and increased risk factor. But again, just the fact that you have LDL doesn't... I mean, LDL, cholesterol is... Uh, low-density lipoproteins carrying cholesterol, those are a normal function of a human body. And to have a certain amount of that activity going on in the body is not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's uh, you know, these, these large, fluffy LDL particles that are benign are actually probably more than just benign. They're probably beneficial. Furthermore, Dr. Kate Shanahan makes this point strongly that um, you should better focus on your triglycerides to HDL ratio because... We do know that when you have a high HDL count, that's scavenging the bloodstream for all the potential, uh, potentially bad molecules and, and flushing them out. Right, and looking at Walter's you know ratios here, I don't, uh, I wouldn't see any issue at all. I mean, uh, HDL is uh, 52 and triglycerides are 42, so he's got a he's got a great HDL to triglyceride ratio. Actually, it's triglyceride to HDL ratio, but. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, with a 92-year-old man, I would do whatever I could to not be on statins for all the other potential side effects that the statins present. Such as depletion of CoQ10 and what happens there? Um, such as increased uh, potential for, um, you know, age-related dementia, such as a decrease in CoQ10, which is a cofactor in energy production. It affects all the muscles in the body, but tends to also affect uh, cardiac muscle. So the irony is that if you have low CoQ10, you might you might be more inclined to have congestive heart failure than s- some sort of atherosclerosis. So um, you know there, and the fact that many people who, who take statins report a decrease in energy levels in general, uh, increase in liver enzymes, uh, not necessarily a good thing. So there are a lot of there are a lot of 
contraindications for taking statin drugs, particularly if you're an older person. But again, we're not allowed to dispense medical advice, so this is all conjecture and theory here. Right. It's just all uh, fodder for the listener to go investigate themselves. However, when you're involved in the primal advantage, you're working with Dr. Kate Shanahan in a metabolic consulting role. So it's not a proper doctor visit, but as a physician, she can comment on some of these blood values. And just to stress that point, if you, if you do have some blood work of your own that you can reference, she talks about the triglycerides to HDL ratio as being absolutely necessary to be 3.5 to 1 or better. If you're over 3.5 triglycerides to 1 HDL, you're in a risk factor zone. And ideally, you would get that down to 1 to 1 or better. Like in Walter's case, he had lower trigs than HDL. So he's better than 1 to 1, which is really flying colors for disease risk. No, I think most people who engage in a paleo style uh, of eating or uh, take on the primal blueprint will have exactly that. They'll have a ratio that's less than one. Forget 3.5. I think even that's like way out of whack. I think uh, most people are going to see that their HDL is, is higher than their triglycerides, which in, in many analyses would put you at the lowest risk factor. Um, Dr. Ron said the same thing. He said the, the traditional uh, upper limit for triglycerides or the, the safe zone is at 150. And he says he wants his patients down to 100. And what the amazing thing is, is that in a very short time, in a matter of weeks from uh, altering your diet from standard American diet, you can drop that thing precipitously. My friend Rob Haswell in, in Auburn, California, um, he got a trig measurement of 600 and something. And in a matter of six weeks, he went back and he got it down to 149. Yeah. So we, we know that there's a, uh, a quick adaptation to the, to the diet uh, and that if you stick to that adaptation, if you stick to that diet, um, you're going to trend toward a lower risk factor for heart disease. Okay, so if you're a listener and you're on statins because you have to be because your doctor says so and this stuff is swirling around in your head, um, should you, could you benefit from taking CoQ10 supplement while you're on statins? Well, anybody who's on statins ought to be taking a CoQ10 supplement, full stop. That's just uh, – and, and any physician who has a patient on statins and is not prescribing uh, uh, CoQ10, even though CoQ10 is an over-the-counter uh, supplement that you can get in any health food store, uh, is doing a great disservice to the patient. In fact, the original patents for statin drugs recognize that by interfering with, the, um, with that enzyme pathway that uh, manufactures not only uh, cholesterol but manufactures CoQ10, that, that the, the original patent suggested that the medicine ought to include CoQ10 in recognition of that fact, but CoQ10 was so expensive to add to the medicine that they kind of kicked it out of the patent in the original uh, application and just went for the statin. It's kind of like when you see those uh, movie outtakes and a great scene was dropped from the movie uh, for due to cost or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. That's terrible news. Yeah. Um, so Primal Nutrition doesn't have a CoQ10 product, but I know it's in the damage control master formula. Yeah, so I'm, uh, the, the master formula, which has been around for 18 years now and is basically a collection of all the things that I think everybody could benefit from taking supplementally uh, does include CoQ10 and, you know, resveratrol and, and uh, grapeseed extract, green tea extract, milk thistle, a lot of herbal supplements and a lot of other extracts and phytonutrients and vitamins and minerals that I think, uh, you know, people could benefit from. But it was recognition that CoQ10 is such an important molecule for energy production in all humans that I put that in there. But I'm just going to reiterate that it's particularly important to supplement with CoQ10 if you are on statins. 
So are you getting enough daily dose if you're taking two packets of Master Formula to cover that CoQ10 base, especially if you're on statins? Well, we have 150 milligrams per day in the Master Formula, and if somebody was on a regular high-dose statins, I'd say you should be taking probably twice that, 300 milligrams of of CoQ10, but if you're on a low-dose statin, then probably 150 it would be sufficient. All right, here comes another question from one of our favorite question submitters, Carl Bendy in Michigan. It's quite long, uh, but he puts in some good stuff, and he's our uh, Primal Transformation Seminar presenter, so he knows his stuff, and he, he gets in deep, and he's going to challenge you with this one. And Carl writes, Can you please elaborate further on the benefits that primal eating has on the suppression of hunger and the thoughts that hunger should be the true guide to eating, not just because you're following the traditional breakfast, lunch, and dinner meal times. Even the great Timothy Noakes, he's a guy we've referenced before, the exercise physiologist from South Africa who's gone primal in recent years. Tim Noakes also mentions that when a high-fat diet is incorporated and carbs are reduced, actual hunger may come around only once every 10 to 12 hours. Once the homeostasis has been reestablished in the body-brain by eating in this style, your hunger will be determined by your activity levels. Noakes references the African lion being at the top of the food chain and who could certainly gorge any time all he wants, but because he has a properly regulated brain and appetite center, he only eats when he's hungry and as a result maintains a lean body composition. That's only half the question, but what do you think about that right now? <laughs> well, um, there's some a lot of good uh, fodder for discussion here. Um, just as Tim, uh, Tim Noakes says that uh, you know the lion... Uh, stays lean, eating when he's hungry and then sleeping and lying around a lot. Um, I don't think we can use that as an analogy for humans. The way, uh, you know, my friend Dr. Michael Eads would say humans are not uh, big furry mice or mice are not furry little humans. They, um, the, the, the idea that once you get your uh, reaccess, your ability to burn fats efficiently, which was your factory setting at birth, that is once you cut out the carbs, the sugars, the processed crap, and you become better at accessing stored body fat at any point during the day for energy, one of the effects of that is that that the hunger that used to drive you uh, is now mitigated. The hunger sort of dissipates. It it reduces. Uh, And that's just a sort of if you follow along what happens with a high-carb, high-sugar-based diet where you become so dependent on glucose as a fuel every couple of hours and note the fact that your body can't store that much glucose and note the fact that if you are insulin resistant, then whatever glucose you put into your body at a meal uh, gets maybe sequestered in the fat cells but not in the muscle cells and it's a, a, a vicious cycle of taking in energy and then not being able to even burn it and certainly not being able to access stored body fat. All of, all of this cycle in the sugar burning paradigm uh, all it does is continually keep your appetite stoked because you, so you have no energy, so you're hungry and you're hungry and you eat and the food that you eat because it's mostly carbohydrate doesn't have the impact on your energy that you intended it to and a few hours later it's, it's been sequestered in the fat cells and you don't have access to it anymore and the whole cycle repeats itself. So you're always, you're living your life in hunger based on this desire and this uh, constant search for a new supply of glucose. All that goes away in the fat paradigm. All of that becomes easily mitigated and handled when you become a fat-burning beast and when you become good at accessing your stored body fat, when you become good at taking the fat out of storage and 
unburdening your body of having to have a, a requirement, a daily requirement for glucose for the brain. So yeah, the theoretically, when you're a fat-burning beast, you ought to be able to live your life based on hunger alone, and there's no reason to have three square meals a day or five small high-protein meals carried around in Tupperware or whatever the, you know, the old way of doing it was. Uh, and what I recommend people do is you wake up in the morning and you ask yourself, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm up, I'm, I'm energetic, am I hungry? And if you're not hungry, then there's no reason to eat yet. There's no reason to, to have a prophylactic breakfast, uh, you know, just to get you through the next couple of hours. If you are good at burning fat, you'll be able to continue doing what you do. And I wake up in the morning and I have a cup of coffee. That's about the only form of, of uh, intake that I'll have until maybe uh, noon or 1 o'clock. And I get a workout done and I get uh, a lot of work done in the morning in a fasted state. Uh, because I'm good at doing that. So I don't really, even, even in my own life, it's, it's, I eat two meals a day and they're typically uh, separated. I might have uh, breakfast, I mean, I might have lunch at uh, 12 or, or 1 and then I might have uh, dinner at 7 and that's, those are my two main meals of the day and that's it. So I, I'll go 16, 18 hours without eating uh, and be perfectly fine doing that and feel perfectly normal. And if somebody if, if I hadn't known that the rest of the world lives on three meals a day plus a snack, I'd assume that that was the, the way you're supposed to live. So in the carb paradigm, you're saying the hunger is largely caused by a glucose-depleted brain that's sending the signal of hunger. And how does that differ from true hunger? What's happening there? That's tr- I mean, that's true hunger when the brain is, is used to eating consuming uh, carbohydrate and, and having you consume carbohydrate and, and burning the glucose that is generated as a result of the carbohydrate. So the brain is recognizing hunger because it's depending, on, depending so much on glucose. When you become fat adapted and when you become keto adapted, and you don't have to be in ketosis a lot or all the time or even ever really to be, to be still fat adapted and somewhat keto adapted, the brain's dependency on glucose decreases, and you don't need to eat, consume a fresh supply of carbohydrate every couple of hours to keep the brain running on glucose uh, because the brain's become so good. It's actually built the metabolic machinery to be able to access the ketones that are produced as a result of your ability to burn fat. So you unburden the brain of this requirement of, of a fresh supply of glucose, and as a result, the brain says, I'm not hungry. I don't need even though the glucose has kind of leveled itself off in my bloodstream and it may be uh, at a constant level and it may be enough to supply some of the red blood cells and my brain, but it's at a, at a much lower level than I was used to, uh, because the brain is able to function on much less glucose and function more on, on a supply of ketones, the the hunger signals don't, don't hit the brain. The brain doesn't get it, – it, you know, when the brain – is affected by a by low blood sugar if you're a sugar burner, then you get a sense of, of you know, you feel weak, you feel lightheaded, you feel grumpy, you feel moody, you feel anxious, you feel like you're going to rip someone's head off if you don't get uh, the next meal down your throat. That doesn't happen when you have become good at burning fat and when, you become, when you've built that metabolic machinery that can access ketones in the absence of, of another meal somewhere. So... The second part of Carl's question relates to a hard training athlete exerciser. So when you do an intense workout, 
and you're going to have some sensations of hunger to replenish glycogen and just uh, replenish your energy. So that happens. You want to go eat when you're, when you're hungry, just like you said. But what about when you're going through a weekly pattern of some days you're exercising intensely and then the, the next day is a rest day? And Carl wonders, should you perhaps stoke that fire, uh, uh, eat to uh, help recover from the previous day's intensity and prepare for future activity? Yeah, so if you're an athlete and you're undertaking this sort of unnatural act of going out and training hard and expending calories that your body doesn't otherwise want you to expend, uh, because it, from an evolutionary point of view, hard training for sports is sort of counterproductive to, to survival. Um, you know, you, you, you think about what it takes to um, exist from one meal to the next on the savanna or, or in the uh, you know, early parts of, uh, the, of Europe during the, some of the early ice ages. Uh, this was a time when food was always scarce, and you, if, when there was food around, you ate it, and when there wasn't, you were, the body was prepared to take it out of storage and burn fat for as long as it needed to until the next source of food came around. So here we are as athletes, now we're choosing to expend calories almost recklessly in pursuit of a training goal. So the athlete has to kind of take a little bit of a step back and go, okay, what, what serves me best in terms of uh, my preparation for the event coming up or my preparation for the workout that I'm going to do tomorrow. So if I'm an athlete and I've chosen today to do a long uh, bike ride, fasted, that is I didn't eat very much, I certainly didn't carbo load, um, I took uh, some MCT oil and a couple of, uh, maybe a couple of packets of, of cashew nut butter on my ride and some water and a couple of electrolytes to get me through a four or five hour easy ride, everything's fine. And I get home and I don't really, I'm not even hungry after that ride. I might, you know, eat a normal meal, but I don't really feel the need to, uh, certainly to carbo load. However, if, if I'm thinking to myself, well, tomorrow uh, my workout is going to be uh, going to the gym and doing a metabolic conditioning workout at CrossFit, or if it's going to be going to the track and doing hard, hard intervals where I'm going anaerobic, I'm going glycolytic for that um, a great portion of that workout, then I'm better served by having uh, 150 grams of carbohydrate tonight with dinner in the form of, say, a sweet potato or even a white potato, um, maybe some rice, uh, you know, some form of what has been labeled a safe starch, just to kind of top off the glycogen supplies, knowing that tomorrow is going to be a hard workday. Um, if I didn't have that hard workday facing me tomorrow, then I'd think to myself, well, am I hungry? And if I'm not hungry, I don't really need to eat that much more. If I am hungry, I'll eat to my, uh, to my to satiety. And that's that intuitive skill that I want everybody to develop, which is to, to sort of know when it's appropriate to eat a lot and when it's not appropriate to eat or when it's okay to choose not to eat because because you're not hungry. And when you're not hungry, that's your body saying, look, I got things handled for now. Um, when you're not hungry, that's your body saying, we still have plenty of fat on us that we can get by for the next couple of hours until, until we do get hungry. So it's pretty, I would guess it's pretty easy to keep your glycogen tank full. I mean, you're going to have an appetite when you're glycogen depleted, and then you're going to eat and you're going to top off the, the, the reserves. And if you keep eating or overeat, you're going to get fat. Well, that's what we see happening with um, a lot of citizen athletes who 
train in, inappropriately and, and they go into that chronic cardio zone where they're uh, when they're out training hard every day and they're eating they're, 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 they've not become good at, at accessing their stored body fat yet they're burning a little bit of fat in the workout but mostly what they're burning in the workout is a lot of glycogen so they're depleting glycogen in every workout and then they're getting home and because they've because they're still not good at burning fat because they're still sugar dependent their brain goes hey there's you 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 burn through all the sugar on that workout the brain my brain isn't even functioning properly i'm hungry damn it let's eat and the tendency is to overeat is to is to overcompensate for that loss of glycogen and glucose uh and that's why a lot of uh, average age group athletes or citizen athletes or people who do one or two 10Ks a year or enter the marathon once or twice a year uh, have a tough time losing that last 10 or 25 pounds because the amount of training they're doing is A, probably inappropriate for the style of racing that they're going to be doing and B, all it's doing is increasing their appetite every day at the end of a workout and it's this vicious cycle where you burn off the glycogen, but you don't burn off much fat, and then you replenish the glycogen, and then everything that you eat over what is needed to replenish the glycogen gets stored as more body fat. That doesn't, that, that's not as prevalent a situation when you're good at burning fat, when you've become the fat-burning beast that you ought to be, when, you're, when you've built the metabolic machinery to be able to burn fats efficiently, when you've increased the number of mitochondria in the cells, which are the little energy-producing powerhouses of those muscle cells that actually take the fat in and burn it for fuel. When you become good at all these things, you, you unburden that body of having to re, refuel glycogen all the time and gets us back to the original premise, which is then you're not even, you're not even that hungry even after a, you know, a, a reasonably long workout. Now, you might be hungry after a really, really hard workout because if you've gone glycolytic, if you've gone into that into the tank where the glycogen is stored and started depleting some of that, that's your, that's your body and your brain saying, okay, we, gotta, we, we should probably try and replenish the glycogen. Um, and I'd speculate that if you get into a chronic pattern where you're continually depleting your glycogen reserves and your energy reserves, your appetite probably gets out of whack where you're, where you're actually prompted to overeat, not eat optimally, but overeat, unlike the lion. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of people will tell you the reason they run is so they can eat. And uh, that's an interesting observation by a lot of people. A telling and I, observation. Telling. I mean, or, you know, I, I was in Aspen this uh, past week and did, I hiked at altitude every day, and that's a great workout. And, and I met a number of people there, and I say, well, geez, you're, you're doing this hard workout every single day at altitude. That just must be chewing you up. And they say, well, I do it, I do it so I can go out at night and drink and so I can, I can eat more. And um, I guess I'm just too lazy these days to think in those terms. I, I go, okay, well, what's the, again, what's the least amount of exercise I can do and still maintain my fat burning capacity so that I'm burning fat even when I'm not working out? Um, let's, let's wrap up this thread with Carl's final uh, postscript, which is what I'm thinking in my head right now too. Are the impulses people may have to eat when they're not truly hungry the result of food addiction? And does that begin to subside as they progress further into the primal lifestyle and learn to eat intuitively? Uh, well, s certainly uh, that whole sense of hunger does subside as you uh, progress further into the, the uh, primal blueprint eating style. Um, are these impulses um, an effect of a food addiction? They may be. I mean, a lot of people are addicted to um, the opiate-like substances that are, in, that are found in grains and particularly bread. So that's why a lot of 
endurance athletes uh, still carbo load and, and, and load up on bread. Um, I'm not so certain that it's, that it's a food addiction, however, that's driving this. I think that it's a combination of the assumption that, that the more food you can eat without gaining weight, the better. I think that's an assumption that a lot of people have is huh. basically how much food can I eat and not gain weight? That's an optimal amount of food for me. And I like to think in almost the exact opposite terms, which is how little food can I eat and still maintain my muscle mass? And when I say that, I mean how little food can I eat and not be hungry Mm -hmm. and still maintain my muscle mass? And the surprising long-term effect of of my going down that path is that I find that I can eat 30% fewer calories now uh, than I did for a, uh, an equal amount of work when I was a carbohydrate-based athlete. Um, and I think that that's really telling, that my body's become more efficient at using the calories I take in. And again, there are, there are people who say, well, wait a minute, that's, you don't want to be efficient. You want to be inefficient. You want to be able to you know, eat 4,000 calories and either burn it off or crap it out. And, and you want to be inefficient. And I'm saying, no, I, I, if I'm not hungry... And if I enjoy every bite of food I ever eat, then what's wrong with my eating the least amount of calories possible and still maintain my, my muscle mass and my energy levels? Now, I'm not orthorexic about this. I don't, I don't have contests with myself to, to, eat, to see how little I can eat. I just have observed over time that I'm eating less and less and still maintaining mass and still getting my workouts done and... and my body fat stays low and, and at a healthy level. My energy levels stay high. And I feel like I'm getting the best of all worlds here. And even on a global scale, I'm thinking, okay, if, the whole, if, the, if the, all of the United States felt this way and everybody were able to exist on, say, 2,400 calories a day instead of 3,600 calories a day, we could feed all the hungry people. Um, you have science on your side because we know that one of the most profound longevity factors is restricted calories. It's not necessarily presented as a, a appealing thing, but what you're saying is you're auto-restricting your calories because your appetite is regulated by your exercise habits and your low-insulin uh, primal-style eating. Uh, back to the original premise, I'm, I'm eating according to my hunger. And if I've got my hunger under control and I'm able to uh, take – Whatever food's on my plate. I'll give you an example. We were out to dinner the other night for my birthday, and I ordered a rack of lamb. And it was at one of these restaurants where the rack of lamb came, and it was nine bones of lamb, each with a sufficient piece of meat on it to feed a small village in Africa. So I did what I could, and I'd had an appetizer, and I'd had some great lobster biscuits. So when the the entree came, uh, I ate two and a half of these nine uh, lamb rack bones that, that came with it, and I packed the rest up and and said, "Let's take it home." I could have, you know, if I in a in a in a past life, I could have eaten all nine of them on a bet and then gone home and not slept well and had a, been very uncomfortable. And but no, it was it was quite clear when I'd had exactly enough to eat, when I was no longer hungry for the next bite, when uh, I was able to take that food and say, "Hey, box it up. I'm going to have this for lunch and dinner tomorrow." Uh, and that's. But, but we don't see enough of that in this country. We see people who are tending to, again, live their sort of lives based on how much food can I eat and not gain weight. And it's just uh, 
uh, a skill to develop uh, and, 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 and sort of intuition to know when you're hungry, when it's appropriate to eat, when it's appropriate to stop eating. And it's got nothing to do with orthorexia or anorexia or any of these other labels. It's just, it's just this skill that you develop once you become fat adapted and keto adapted. And it, and it applies to sedentary people and it applies to world-class athletes. I know we're talking about this at length, but we, we do have a ton of real-life uh, experience and, and feedback from people at PrimalCon and writing in saying, I am full-on hardcore primal, and I'm not losing the body fat that I want. And I'm going to speculate here that you, there's no way to escape your, your, your hunger. And so if you're, if you're in these habit patterns where you're ignoring it and you're reaching and eating for something because it's primal approved and it's allowed and here we are at PrimalCon and we're serving dark chocolate, so go ahead and have, you know, three bars worth, um, that's a, what you're saying is, is it's, a, it's not at all related to disorderly eating, but instead it's stripping away the layers of anything that's keeping you from just honoring your hunger and appetite cycles. Right. And... You know, it's it's a skill. Uh, it starts with uh, probably being very aggressive about how you record everything you eat. And this is for people who, you know, have either uh, major weight issues or who have become primal and have stalled in their weight loss issues uh, and want to get at sort of the root of what, you know, what's what's the problem? How How is it that I'm not losing any more weight? And, you know, we talk a lot about calories in, calories out and the and the idea that that's a Kind of a misnomer and a, and, a, and, a, and faulty logic in some regards. It really the the equation should be more about um, calories burned versus calories stored, and how are you storing those calories, and how are you burning those calories, and how are you taking them in. And for a lot of people, you know, you can turn, you can get into that fat burning zone, and you can be eating a lot of food and and enjoying the fact that. You can now eat lots of bacon and you can lot, eat lots of lard and eggs and omelets and butter and all of the high-fat foods that you uh, used to think you couldn't eat. But there's a point at which uh, even though you're good at burning fat, you're not burning the fat off your body. You're just burning the fat that you're eating on your plate. So in order to, le- to lose excess body fat, there comes a time when you have to create a caloric deficit. You have to burn off more calories than you're taking in or than, or than you're storing. And that's the point at which we start talking about decreasing the amount of calories you take in in a day. Uh, we talk about maybe instituting some intermittent fasting as a, as a strategy for taking those calories off your thighs and hips as opposed to off that plate that's in front of you. Um, I also might want to put in a plug for that elephant in the room, perhaps, for many people, and that's the fear, the fear factor involved in the diet. When I was a triathlete, I will admit that I ate as much as I could and stuffed my face in the evenings because I was afraid the next day of bonking, of running out of glycogen during the extended workouts. And I think a lot of people who have been in the standard American diet eating pattern, the carbohydrate paradigm for a long time, are afraid of missing meals and getting that low blood sugar and all those adjectives you described that's, that's lousy when you run out of energy. And so they, they pack it in like, a, like the, the Indy 500 drivers getting their gas. Yeah, that's that's it may be fear, it may just be access to calories. I mean, it it, it may just be a factor of food being around us everywhere we look. I mean, you and I are recording this podcast in a break room at Primal Nutrition where there's a a whole larder full of 
samples that paleo companies have sent us. And it's tempting to turn Almost around. within reach. They're like <laughs> six inches out of reach. But we've got, you know, nuts and jerky and grain-free granolas and macaroons and, you know, all manner of nut butters and things. And it's very easy to turn around and go, ah, yeah, just out of boredom, I think I'll have two scoops of, uh, of this nut butter or this paleo chocolate or whatever. That's part of the problem is this easy access to food. So that's why in the 21-day total body transformation, one of the first things we, we have you do is clean out your pantry and say, okay, you're only going to stock your house with things that are healthful, and uh, you're going to get rid of all those temptations and all those sugary treats that you would otherwise grab in a moment of weakness or a moment of low blood sugar at 2.30 in the afternoon when that normally hits. Uh, so it's, it's important to to set some guidelines in your life and then to not sabotage yourself by making sure that you've surrounded yourself with supportive people, that you haven't set your home up for sabotage because you have so many of these delicious treats that you overdo it. And, you know, by the same token, not not allowing yourself to, to go hungry ever, but doing so, I mean, I, I've, I've turned so many people onto coconut butter as a snack. And coconut butter, ground up coconut meat, you, you know, if you're one of those people who hits a, hits a low spot at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, normally you would have reached for a bagel. Uh, now I say, you know, one tablespoon of coconut butter can take the edge off your appetite for another couple of hours because of the wonderful fats and MCT oils and stuff that, that's in the coconut. It's not like you need to stop and have a huge handful of nuts, which a lot of people may tend to do. It's not like you have to to uh, take in some some huge 250, 300 calorie energy bar, just a small spoonful of this could be enough to take the edge off. Those are the tricks that you have to kind of learn. Well, I think that was a great wrap up because you really clarified what some of these battles are going on in people's minds and in people's body that they might not be aware of and how to get on track, honor your hunger and appetite cycles. And that was a great, uh, I, I think we got into that that big question on the podcast and spent plenty of time. So at our next Q&A session, we'll tackle some shorter ones and just knock off a bunch on the list of varying interests. But for today, thank you, Mark Sisson, for participating in the Q&A podcast. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Until the next Primal Blueprint podcast. Hey, podcasts are great, but how about a life-changing weekend at PrimalCon? Coming up is the historic occasion of our fifth annual event in Oxnard that's on the beach in Southern California at the amazing Embassy Suites Mandalay Beach Resort. It's about an hour north of Los Angeles, one of the best-kept secrets in Southern California, this resort right on the sands of the beautiful beach town of Oxnard. And we have an amazing park there, an expanse of grass and all kinds of fun stuff to play on. So we'll be spending a fun weekend outdoors with an awesome slate of presenters talking and presenting on all manner of physical activity, diet, health, nutrition, posture and movement mechanics, all kinds of topics covered. So you'll get a great education from the world's leading experts, but we'll also have a ton of fun and excitement. Of course, we're going to play the annual Survivor Team Challenge, just like you see on TV, except this one is more fun, more challenging. It includes brain teasers and good team strategy challenges. We're also going to have, of course, the world-famous PrimalCon Ocean Plunge slash Jacuzzi Sprint. So you're going to run into the pretty cold ocean, guaranteed. 
and then about a two-minute sprint where we take over the entire jacuzzi at the Mandalay Beach Resort. People look at us like we're crazy, but it's tons of fun. And then we're going to dine on the all-time fabulous Primal Con food, which you can see all kinds of pictures of on the website. So visit PrimalBlueprint.com. Look for the Primal Con link. You can see pictures and videos chronicling the wonderful times we've had in Oxnard over the past four years. And we certainly hope you can join us for the fifth annual Primal Con Oxnard, September 25th through 28th, 2014.